Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank You for the precious promises that You made in the Old Testament. You foretold of what was going to happen to Your Son, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the perfect Lamb of God, who came to take away the sin of the world. And we're thankful that every single one of those promises and, and prophecies came true, just as You said they would, even hundreds of years, in this case, 700 years before Jesus came. We're thankful that You're a great God who can, who can make promises and You keep these promises, every single one of them. So we ask that you would, you would cause us to look unto Jesus who endured the cross for sinners like us, that we would see ourselves as, as you see us. And may we see your Son, the one who bore our sin on our behalf. He was our substitute. He took our place. We deserve to be nailed on the cross, but, but he was there for us. So we don't have to. And may we see Jesus. May we love him more. We would love Him with all of our heart, our soul, our mind, our strength, our entire being. May we understand what has been accomplished, what has been finished, and, and the work that Jesus continues on today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Today we're going to see how the Messiah suffered unjustly. We're going to be looking at, the, in my opinion, the greatest Old Testament passage on this would be Isaiah chapter 53. Just try to put yourself in, in Jesus' sandals here for a moment. Right? We normally say put yourself in somebody else's shoes, right? but he didn't have shoes. So put yourself in his sandals. What's it like to experience unfair treatment? Is that something you enjoy? We all experience unfair treatment. Now, fair is that's a terrible word because, I mean, it wasn't fair what happened to Jesus, right? And we don't like experiencing unfair treatment from time to time. It, it does happen, but it's not nice, is it? We, we, we cry foul. We say, oh, that's unfair. But just think about Christ. He endured unspeakable suffering, torture, pain. By the way, none of that he deserved, which we'll see in a moment. But why did he do that? He didn't have to come to earth to endure all of that suffering, torture, and pain. He chose to do that to save his people from their sin. And so we're going to see from this Old Testament passage here how the Messiah suffered unjustly. So the first thing we're going to look at from the passage here is the description of Messiah's suffering. The description of Messiah's suffering. I don't think there's any other greater passage in the Old Testament. It comes close to describing the suffering that Messiah suffered. So let's have a read of this. And actually, to get more of the context, we're going to start in chapter 52. So you just follow along in your Bible as we read the words of the living God. I'm going to start in Isaiah 52, verse 13. Verse 13. As this talks about Jesus, and it says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So he, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. 
For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned, every one, to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living? stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked, and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. The individual words used here are strong words. They're picturesque. They're powerful words. And we need to understand something. That Christ's suffering, by the way, was not limited to just the beating and the scourging and the actual crucifixion. Although some people do that. Jesus suffered in many other ways too, and we'll look at some of these as we think of the description of Messiah's suffering. Number one, we need to understand that Christ suffered socially. He suffered socially. Now, how is that? As we look at the text and other passages of Scripture, we see that he was rejected by his own people. So the social suffering began before his crucifixion. He was rejected by his own people, which of course would have caused him social and mental anguish. Unbelief was something that characterized the response toward Jesus. We can see that in places like verse 1. 
Isaiah 53, verse 1, which says, Who has believed what he has heard from us? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? There was this general unbelief. Not everybody disbelieved, but many did, didn't they? Even Jesus' own uh, family members didn't believe. Some of them didn't believe till the resurrection that Jesus was their Messiah. So he's rejected by his own people. Number two, he had an unbecoming physical appearance. So I, I don't recommend you get a picture of Jesus from the artwork, the general artwork that you often see, or, or movies might not actually portray him right as well. So his unbecoming appearance was not something that drew men to him. We, we can see that even here in verse 2, which says, For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. So Jesus is not some blonde, blue-eyed, beautiful-looking man, you know, some specimen you might see on the front page of some magazine. That's not the way Jesus was. He chose to be just ordinary. It's an amazing truth when you think about it, that the creator of the universe, I mean, the one who, who makes everything, the stars and the planets and the galaxies and the trees and the animals and so forth, would, would humble himself and become a man and become a plain-looking man. Just think about that. So that's just part of him suffering socially. And those of us who are plain-looking men, we, you know, we may have suffered with this, particularly in our teen years. A lot of teenagers struggle with their identity of, of their looks. A lot of people want to find their identity in their looks. And here's why you, you need to find your identity in Jesus Christ, by the way, the one who was a plain-looking man. If you find your identity in him instead of things like your looks, your physical appearance, then it doesn't matter so much how you look. You'll just praise God that he made you and formed you the way he did. But number three, we see that he was born in a stable to a low-class family and raised in an insignificant place. So he chooses an amazing place. I mean, he doesn't choose Jerusalem. Uh, he, he doesn't choose, you know, some other place you might think of. No. The Bible says in John chapter 1, verse 46, that when Nathaniel first heard of Jesus, he scoffed and he said this, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? <laughs> they didn't have a high opinion of Nazareth. You, know, you, you think of some back podunk little town in New Zealand. Imagine saying, Whoa, can a prime minister come from there? Right, that's kind of the idea here. And then in 1 John 7, verse 52, when challenged by Nicodemus to give Jesus a fair hearing, here's what the leaders said. The leaders of Israel said, No prophet arises from Galilee. <laughs> that was their perspective. So people despised and rejected Jesus. If you look at verse 3, it says that he was despised and rejected by men. Literally, the idea is that people turned their backs on him. They hid their faces, as it said, as you read on in verse 3. They hid their faces from him. By the way, that's a phrase that was used to, to describe what people would do to the lepers. If somebody had leprosy, uh, they, 
the lepers were supposed to cry out, unclean, unclean. They were afraid maybe <laughs> they were contagious. Didn't want other people to get their leprosy. And so they, that's what they were supposed to say. And people would turn away from them. The lepers were despised. They weren't allowed to live in the towns and the cities. They were supposed to be outside on their own. And so those who saw Jesus experienced those, uh, those sorrows had no loving gratitude in their hearts toward Him. Some might say that Christ was a failure. Well, Messiah was God's suffering servant. You'll see the word servant used in Isaiah here several times in the previous chapters and then even in the following chapters. He's God's servant. And so because He was a servant, His Hometown, his social status, his physical appearance were unimportant. A lot of those things that we we often try to find our identity in were unimportant. That ought to tell us something about the, the things we often try to find our identity in. They should be un- unimportant. They're often too important to us. And so the only qualification of a servant is that He's able to do the job. Was was Jesus able to fulfill the job? Of course he was. He was humble and wholesome, but not handsome. He probably didn't exude charisma like some leaders might. He didn't display a flashy lifestyle. You know, he probably would have never been invited on 7 sharp, you know, 7 p.m., if you ever watch that show on TV, there's a TV show on Channel 1 called Seven Sharp. I can't imagine Mike and that lady, sorry, I forget her name, ever inviting someone like Jesus to come on the show. Because Jesus wasn't that kind of a guy. And so if you look for a leader, we, we don't naturally turn to servants. We, we want somebody who's rich or somebody who has charisma, somebody... who's a good speaker or whatever, right? Somebody who's smart. Those are often the kind of people we turn to for leadership. That's not the way Jesus was. He was a servant. We also see, number two, that Christ suffered physically. As we, we continue thinking about the description of Messiah here, He suffered physically. And this is the one a lot of people think of, and the text does talk about it. Uh, For example, if you look at chapter 52, verse 14, It says, as many were astonished at you, that's Jesus, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So the torture he endured, the suffering he endured was so great, some people who knew him might have a hard time recognizing him. So when Christ was on the cross, do you think he he looked like often those paintings, you know, (laughs) Those paintings are irritating to me sometimes. I find it frustrating. It, it shows somebody who's like really peaceful, and like sometimes it looks like he's enjoying being on the cross. You know, man, this is I'm just going to hang out here, literally for a while. You know, this is great. No, it wasn't great. Pictures aren't accurate. Well, that that verse is really a summary statement concerning the despicable suffering that Christ experienced. The Bible says he endured punishment that was amazing. They found it amazing that one who 
suffered so much could then be exalted and honored. It just didn't seem to fit what the Bible was talking about. If you look at verse 13, it just doesn't... Verse 14 almost is the exact opposite of verse 13, isn't it? Chapter 52, 13 says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. What? And then you go to verse 14, it's like, that doesn't make sense. High, exalted, lifted up. I mean, verse 14 says that Christ's outward appearance is marred. He's disfigured beyond recognition. (laughs) However, through his suffering, he ended up becoming this perfect sacrifice for sin. Well, I like what uh, a medical doctor by the name of Truman Davis, what he had to say in regards to the physical effects of crucifixion. Now, fortunately, this doesn't happen much nowadays. And so we're, we're a little uh, challenged by this, if you, if you will. So here's what this medical doctor had to say about the physical effects of crucifixion. I'm quoting. As the arms fatigue, great waves of cramps sweep over the muscles, knotting them in deep, relentless, throbbing pain. With these cramps comes the inability to push himself upward. Hanging by his arms, the pectoral muscles are paralyzed. The intercostal muscles are unable to act. Air can be drawn into the lugs but cannot be exhaled. Jesus fights to raise himself in order to get even one short breath. Finally, carbon dioxide builds up in the lungs and in the bloodstream, and the cramps partially subside. Spasmodically, he's able to push himself upward to exhale and bring in the life-giving oxygen. Hours of this limitless pain, cycles of twisting, joint-rending cramps, Intermittent partial asphyxiation, searing pain as tissue is torn from his lacerated back as he moves up and down against the rough timber. Then another agony begins. A deep crushing pain in the chest as the pericardium slowly fills with serum and begins to compress the heart. It is now almost over. The loss of tissue fluid has reached a critical level. The compressed heart is struggling to pump heavy, thick, sluggish blood into the tissues. The tortured lungs are making a frantic effort to grasp in small gulps of air. The markedly dehydrated tissues send their flood of stimuli to the brain. End quote. (laughs) Well, he continues on, but do you get the point? So it's far more than the, the flogging and the punchings and everything else that he endured and the nails through the wrist and through the feet and so forth. There's a lot going on there. Now you need to understand something. The, the text doesn't go into all that, but if you look like in verse 5, for example, chapter 53, verse 5, it talks that he was pierced. He was crushed. Isaiah says that, that Christ was wounded. That, by the way, referring to a piercing wound made by a sword or a spear. We also know that Jesus' wrist and feet were pierced with spikes and a soldier pierced his side uh, with the spear. It's truly amazing, by the way, to note that these wounds that the Bible talks about to Christ's body are going to remain visible for all eternity. Jesus could have chose to have no, no scars. 
but Revelation chapter 5 says that the lamb is going to appear as he had been slain. The lamb of God is going to choose to remain as he was. Verse 5 also talks about, it says, Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Chastisement, by the way, refers to disciplinary punishment. And so the punishment that was due us was given to Jesus. And that happened because he became our substitute. See, my friend, you deserve to die on the cross. But Jesus took your place as your substitute sacrifice. Verse 5 also talks about with his stripes we are healed. The stripes are the wounds that were left by the whip. The scourging that Christ faced at the hands of the Roman soldiers left his back raw and open and lacerated. Verse 7 talks about him being oppressed and he was afflicted. So Christ was under the oppressive hand of those violent taskmasters. They caused them to suffer the physical torture. But he chose to do that. The word afflicted, by the way, sometimes is translated humble, includes the thought of browbeating. It's a very apt picture of the way the Romans and the Jews treated Jesus Christ. He was oppressed and afflicted. Number three, Christ suffered emotionally. He also suffered emotionally. Men, you have to understand something. Even Jesus' disciples not in Israel in general misunderstood Christ's mission and the cause of his suffering. There was this really bad theology that goes all the way back to Job, but it continued up even to Jesus' day where they thought you suffered because of your sin. Suffering is a result of sin. And so when you look at places like verse 5 here, it seems that phrase where it says he was bruised or crushed for our iniquities. You might think that's referring to a physical suffering, but in fact the, the, the word bruise or crush means to destroy as an enemy in battle. It's used elsewhere in Scripture. Uh, the idea is it's, it's a figurative, oppressive, mental and emotional suffering. Not so much the physical abuse that Jesus bore, but it was a mental, a mental or emotional abuse. And so we, we read that while Christ was on the cross, that Christ was numbered with the transgressors. That's in verse 12. He was numbered with the transgressors. Now remember, Jesus is not like you and me. He's perfect. He's perfect. So to be numbered with transgressors is not is not how the perfect God wants to be labeled. He doesn't want to be counted and considered to be a transgressor when he's not. He would have been buried, by the way, with the two thieves that were next to him, who were crucified with him. Fortunately, there was a rich man who wanted to honor Jesus and gave him his own tomb. For Christ, the most painful part of the entire crucifixion experience is mentioned here in verse 6. In verse 6, when it says that 
God the Father laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. What's going on there? Christ became an offering for our sin. He's bearing your sin, all of your sin, so you don't have to. We, we see this concept in other places. I'll give you a few scripture references here. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. 1 Peter 2.24 says, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. So while this passage from Isaiah emphasizes Messiah's suffering, it's his death, by the way, that provides justification. So God the Father looks at us as just as if we have not sinned. And in fact, it goes even better than that. God the Father looks at you and he sees Christ in you. So suffering alone couldn't have brought about our redemption. It was Christ's death that paid sin's penalty. And and Paul talks about this in Acts chapter 17. Look Look what Paul said. You say, well, was it necessary for Christ to die? Well, look what Paul says. Acts 17 verse 2. Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary. Notice the word necessary. It was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. So, obviously, if he's rising from the dead, then he died, right? Kind of obvious. Yes, it was necessary. It's the way God prescribed it. Well, obviously, this was something that was unjust. Let's have a look at the injustice here of Messiah's suffering. Because Christ was not just an ordinary man. He wasn't an ordinary human being like you and me. He's different. Let's let's think about this. Uh, If you and I suffer, it's because we deserve it. Many people deserve the punishment they suffer because we've, we've either sinned or we do something foolish. But that's not the case with Christ. He's never done anything foolish. He's never suffered because of his own sin. He didn't sin. In fact, he was innocent. (laughs) His innocence, by the way, is is illustrated here in verse 7. Look at verse 7. It says, For a brief moment I deserted... Oh, sorry, wrong chapter. 53 verse 7 says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearer is, is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Isaiah proclaimed Messiah's innocence in verse seven. Sorry, verse nine, when it says, "And they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth." So he's not suffering because of his own sin. He was God's righteous one. Verse eleven says, "Verse eleven says that Jesus was God's righteous one." 
Well, the New Testament, by the way, of course, supports this belief that Jesus was sinless. Jesus was perfect. Let me give you just a few examples. Hebrews 4, verse 15, they're on the screen here for you, says this about Jesus, that he is without sin. The Apostle Paul spoke of Jesus in 2 Corinthians 5. He says that he knew no sin. Even Pilate, an unbeliever, the Roman governor of Judea at the time, Pilate says in Matthew 27, I find no fault in this man. Sorry, that's Luke 23. And then Matthew 27 says that uh, he was called a just person. A just person. So even the unbelievers recognized Jesus' innocence. So he clearly, this was an injustice. But number two, Christ was unjustly judged. This is a debacle. This is a joke. This is not justice. If you read particularly in Matthew and John, look at this. Jesus, even in his trial, faced injustice. If you were on trial, this is not what you'd want to experience. So look at this. Number one, Matthew 26 says that the trial included false witnesses. They had to go and and basically find people to lie about Jesus. Matthew 26, verse 61, says that the statements that the witnesses made were taken out of context. Anybody ever done that to you? It's not nice, is it? Something you said, ripping out of its context, can sound really bad. And then number three, he was struck before being found guilty, according to John 18. According to John 18, it was contrary to the laws of justice. The witnesses against him didn't appear personally before Pilate. It wasn't supposed to happen, but it did. And then in John 19, the Roman government scourged, mocked, and crucified Christ, even though they had found no fault in him. He was executed even though Pilate said, I find no fault in him. He's a just man. (laughs) It's amazing, isn't it? Well, Isaiah predicted this injustice in verse 8 when he says, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. So Christ's death was a case of the just for the unjust. You're the unjust. I'm the unjust. But the just takes our place. And that's the idea in 1 Peter 3.18, which says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, or the just for the unjust. Why? Why? Look, look, it gives you the reason right at the end of the verse. It says that he might bring us to God. My friend, that's good news. That reconciliation between God and man between you and God, is made possible because of the finished work of Christ and the continuing work of Christ. So divine justice is important to understand here. See, it calls for the satisfaction of a holy God. A holy God cannot just gloss over sin. He can't just overlook sin. Your sin has to be dealt with. And so... That could be accomplished only as a holy God Himself providing for you and me the perfect sacrifice. 
By the way, Christ could have prayed, the Bible says, for 12 legions of angels to come and defend him. Not that Jesus needed angels (laughs) to defend himself. So he could have called for like 12 armies, 12 Roman armies to come and defend himself. Very powerful angels, quite capable, each one on their own of wiping them all out. But Jesus chose not to do that. He had the power, but he didn't do it. Why? Because he knew his death had a purpose. And so he willingly chose to give up his life. Jesus talked about this before his death, even in John chapter 10, verse 11, where he said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Let's move on to think about the reason for Messiah's suffering. Obviously, the Messiah suffered unjustly. But why? When he had the power to deal with these people, why didn't he do it? Well, there's some haunting questions that need to be asked here. Here's some questions for you to think about. Why was the Lord Jesus Christ treated so badly? Wasn't he recognized as a man who went about doing good? Even today, a lot of people talk about him being a good teacher. So why was he treated badly if he's a good teacher? And why would anybody want to harm such an admirable person? Why? Well, I've got three reasons for you to consider. Number one, Christ suffered because of the erroneous conclusions of mankind. See, as men looked at the grief that was heaped upon the Messiah, what did they see? Most people only saw the physical suffering that Jesus was going through. They assumed that Jesus had brought this upon himself, or that Jesus had sinned, and so he's suffering as a result of his own sin. So God's punishing him because of his own sin. You you see this concept in verse 4. Verse 4 says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Oh yeah, we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God. So as you read your Bible, you you see this idea that the, the people mocked Jesus. They assumed that if he truly were God's son, that God would deliver him from the cross. That's what Matthew 27 says. And so the Jews even believed that they were serving God by putting Jesus Christ to death. (laughs) Just like the Apostle Paul used to think when he was Saul, he thought he was doing God's service in putting Christians in prison and killing people like Stephen. And so the Jews believe that they're serving God. And they, of course, misunderstood who Jesus was. They didn't understand his identity and his mission. And they misunderstood why he suffered. They didn't recognize that he was suffering for them. Fortunately, some of them did later on, didn't they? Read in the book of Acts. So Christ suffered because of error in their thinking. But number two, Christ suffered because of God's eternal plan. God had a plan. 
So God was not up in heaven saying, oh no, they're going to nail my son to the cross. Now what am I going to do? <laughs> well, there goes plan A. i got to come up with another plan. He wasn't thinking that. He's thinking the whole time, this is my plan. The crucifixion didn't take God by surprise. God's never surprised. The Apostle Peter knew this truth, of course. You remember Peter preached at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2? He's preaching to the men of Israel. These are the same guys who had Jesus crucified. And in Acts 2 verse 23, here's what Peter says. He, he's pretty bold here. Because he says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Wow. <laughs> I think, do, you, do you think Peter's thinking, okay, I, I'm going to be crucified after saying this. What, I, I would imagine he may have been thinking that. But notice there's a very delicate, interesting, delicate balance going on, even in that very verse, between God's sovereign plan and man's responsibility. Peter talks about both in the same verse. See, God had a definite plan. It was all according to the foreknowledge of God. But yet these people are responsible for their sin. The greatest sin probably ever committed is crucifying a perfect man, a perfect God. So those words, hands of a lawless, the hands of lawless men, are showing that Peter's holding the Jews responsible for Christ's death, even though it was part of God's eternal divine plan. So who's responsible for Jesus' death? Well, the answer is yes. <laughs> the answer is both. God's responsible, but so were the people. They're both responsible. So from God's perspective, the suffering of Christ was completed in eternity past. In other words, the suffering and the crucifixion of Christ were all part of God's eternal plan. Therefore, Isaiah could clearly prophesy of this 700 years before Jesus even came. If you look at verse 10, look what it says. Who's responsible according to verse 10? It says, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. And then the end of it talks about the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. So whose will is this? God's will. God the Father willingly chose to crush his son. But why was Jesus Christ, the Messiah, put to such abuse? Because it was part of God's redemptive plan to use people's sin. He's using their sin. He's not the author of their sin, but he used their sin to crush his son. It was an act of God's love. And you need to understand this as the background to a verse I hope you all know, John 3.16, which says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So Christ suffered because of God's eternal plan for Messiah. But number three, Christ suffered because of your sin. 
Christ suffered because of our sin. Did you notice how often it talks about our sin in various forms in this text? It doesn't just use the word sin. It also uses words like transgressions, iniquities. Over and over again, I've, I've counted at least six different verses just in this one chapter alone where it talks about this is why God did this. For example, look verse 5. I'll just give you one example. Verse 5, it says, But he was pierced, why? For our transgressions. He was crushed, why? For our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. So why did Jesus do this? He suffered because of our sin. Over and over again. At least six verses. So, my friend, you need to understand, you have at least four needs as a sinner. As a sinner, you have at least four needs. Now, take note of these. These aren't original with me. I've got these from various places. But, number one, we deserve to die as the penalty for sin. That's what the Bible says. The wages of sin is death. That's what you've earned. And number two, we deserve to bear God's wrath against sin. The good news is Jesus took your place. He bore God's wrath. That's what propitiation means. And number three, we're separated from God by our sins. That's why you need to be reconciled to God. And number four, we are in bondage to sin and to the kingdom of Satan. So (laughs) that's some bad news. But my friend, here's the good news. Because we can praise God, every single one of those four needs are met by Jesus' death. Christ's death meets all those needs. He's accomplished all those. He's made justification and conversion and reconciliation and propitiation. All those things are made possible. Redemption is through Jesus Christ our Lord. There's a beautiful hymn in our hymn book. We sometimes sing, the name of the hymn is Hallelujah, What a Savior. The second verse of that hymn is beautiful. Well, they're all beautiful, but I particularly like verse 2 because it really summarizes and encapsulates this idea quite well. So let me sing it for you because this this is what Christ has done in meeting these needs that we have. Here's what verse 2 says of Hallelujah, what a Savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. My friend, Jesus died for your sin. If you've never put your trust, your belief, your faith, and in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection for your sin, let today be the day you do that. For those of us who are believers, we've already put our faith and trust in Jesus alone to save us from our greatest problem, which is our sin. Then, my friend, you you need to keep looking to Jesus. Keep trusting in Jesus. 
Trust in his finished work and preach this gospel to yourself every day. Live in the light of this gospel by his grace and his grace alone. Let's pray.